0: our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever amen we are in chapter 13 of Revelation And we are looking at the second beast. We left off, maybe to give a recap from, from last week, we left off by going back and looking at that great angel, that humongous angel, with one of his with one of his feet standing in the sea, and and the other of his feet standing on the land. And then we're told that these beasts come up from the sea and the land. Again, a a not-so-subtle visual reminder that God and his angels are entirely in control. And as ferocious and as fierce as these two beasts are, they are completely under the control of God, our Father, Okay, so it also behooves us to remember that this vision or visionary unit in Revelation begins at chapter 12 with the twofold vision of the woman and the dragon. You remember the woman gives birth and the child is caught up to God in heaven. So the incarnation, the birth, the death, the resurrection and the ascension all right there. At which point in time, then the dragon, the great red dragon, is cast down. No longer can he uh, accuse the brethren before God in heaven. He has lost that power. He has lost that privilege to enter that heavenly domain. But woe to the earth, for now he is here. And his business is persecuting the woman and her children, namely the church. But God is providing for the woman, and, and the, that is the church, so that uh, she can survive. Again, we're reminded of Jesus' words, fear not the one who can kill just the body. Fear not the one who can kill just the body, because that's, that's all the more the devil can do. It's all the more the devil can do. And really, the entire power of this dragon is simply in the lie. We have to battle these lies constantly, constantly, lest we fall into self-righteousness on one hand or despair on the other. Uh, but these, these lies, sometimes they take years to conquer, and sometimes we don't conquer the lies, sometimes we just endure them. We say, I don't know, I don't understand, but I know God is good, and I know he is who he says he is, and I know what he's, what he's done for me in Christ Jesus, and, and that's sufficient. I don't have to have an answer for this lie. But again, some of the lies that this dragon speaks and teaches and writes into us through our sinful nature, they take a long, long time to even realize their lies and, and an even longer time to, to cast them out and cast them down within us so they no longer affect us. All right, well, this great red dragon, though, is not alone. He's not alone. When, when Christ pass him down. And there are other indicators of this in Revelation and then also throughout the Scriptures. Maybe particularly a section of Isaiah that I shared with you and Chrysostom's Easter homily and his take on that where Chrysostom and, and much of the early church with him really understand Satan and the, the fall of Satan, which the Scriptures just give us pride. They understand this to be a personal pride and vindictiveness on the part of the dragon. He wants to be the Son of God. He wants to be um, the Christ. He wants to be the center of this epoch and era. And when Christ is crucified, is vindicated by God, raised from the dead, ascended to the throne of God and coronated over the heavens and the earth, all authority in heaven and on earth been given to him, like this this is what burns the dragon. He sees himself as the proper Christ. This typology, as I've as I've discovered, I was not even aware of it. And those of you who have been tracking along in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel with Saul and David, uh, and then even with David and Absalom, we've seen many of these same themes, many of these same themes spelled out. There's this rivalry, it's a one-way rivalry on the part of the devil. So the devil is always trying to ape and mimic. God and out God God. In a real sense, you can even think of that as as the devil takes over this world, he gets Adam and Eve to listen to him and obey his voice. He becomes the God of this world, as the scriptures say, and this world he is designing um, really in hopes that human beings would be loyal to him unto death rather than turn and be loyal to God unto, unto death. I mean, that's his play. Viewed from this angle, that's the dynamic, and that's his play. I am, the true, I am the true God. So in true form, then, in mimicry, mimicking the true God, this dragon and his evil take on a kind of triune form. And that is quite evident here in the interregnum, this pause between the cycles of seven, where you have the red, the great red dragon, and the beast of the sea, which we spent most of the time last week talking about, and the beast of the earth, which we're going to spend time talking about today. But you have an anti-trinity. I mean, they're, they're all one in evil. Uh, but you have these different persons, these different, the, the dragon and the two beasts. Now, In looking at the dragon, uh, or excuse me, the beast that comes up out of the sea, we spent a lot of time last week seeing how the right read of that is uh, tyrannical political power leveraged against the woman and her children, leveraged against the church. So in the first century, from the perspective of those to whom John is writing, that looked like Rome. But as you're a Christian in various times and places, and you're reading Revelation, and you're seeing the world through the apocalyptic lens of Revelation, that beast is changing shape and form, isn't it? So that it's not just the Roman Empire, but... Even it's so, so just one more major data point, but at the time of the Reformation, it's quite obviously and evidently this mixture of church and state, of, of papacy and uh, Charles V, that's leading to the bloodshed and the persecution of Christians who are simply standing up for the gospel and biblical teachings. And then in our day and age, as Americans, I mean, the temptation is because we're American and we're the center of the whole world and we're not even sure other countries actually exist, uh, (laughs) let alone do we know their their names, then Revelation must be all about us, of course, and so we can see the dragon everywhere and the beasts everywhere. Um, It does behoove us to take a step back and say, okay, no, let's kind of rein that corporate collective ego in check. And uh, no, but, but, The opposite of that error, the opposite of that error of like, this is all about us, this is all about America, would be to say, this has nothing to say to us. Because here we are as Christians in America and the lens that St. John is giving us is that apocalyptic lens where we would look and say, "What, what does the beast look like, the beast from the earth and the beast from the sea now? What does that look like? How does that manifest to our eyes? Again, the beast of the sea, political tyranny government of course is good we've talked about the foundation of creation is the family and the that's the first estate fatherhood being really central in that family and then we've talked about the civil sphere or the state that being the second estate and uh, again patriarchy and being the center and then, so too, with the right hand kingdom or ecclesiastical state, the, the third estate. And what we're going to see is that the dragon attacks the family. We see that attacking the woman in, the, in an image. And we're going to see the, the beast, the, the political beast, the beast of the sea, attack and corrupt God's good gift of government. We're going to see the beast from the earth, the false religious beast, attack and try to infiltrate and turn uh, Christianity itself, but all religion as a whole, and service to evil and in persecution of the woman. All right, so it's a corruption, it's the deepest threefold corruption of of God's creation by this threefold uh, dragon, beast, and beast. All right, are we tracking so far with the the basic themes and thrusts? All right, so then political persecution that we see today, we ought to have no problem saying that's the beast from the sea. That's what it is. He looks different from age to age and place to place, but that's, that's what it is. All right, let's get into the second beast, chapter 13, verse 11. And one, one quick Point Before we begin, we have seen John do this, and this is common to the apocalyptic genre of biblical literature, to simply stack layer upon layer upon layer of of these symbols and themes and meanings. Like the two lampstands, which are are in some ways uh, representative of the Holy Spirit, in some ways representative of the church, in some ways representative of... uh, uh, Elijah and Moses, and you just have these things stacked up one upon the other. So too then, here, um, we are going to have image upon image stacked up. The second beast is also going to be the false prophet and also the great harlot. So you'll see this imagery stacked up. All right, that's it for the prefatory remarks. Verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns. Now, two horns might not in and of itself be enough, but look what, John, look what John says next. Like a lamb. Who's the only other lamb mentioned in all of Revelation? The lamb, Christ. So this is a mockery and aping of Christ. So he has two horns like a lamb. Now, how many, how many horns does the Christ lamb have? Do you recall? Seven. Seven horns and s- seven eyes. I made a confirmation class one year, draw me the lamb in revelation. I won't do that again. Jeez, <laughs> it's traumatic for me. Yeah, seven horns and seven eyes. The minds of adolescents, my. Um, yeah, so seven being though the number of perfection. And again, we're, what we're seeing is he's only got two. So this isn't perfect power. This is not, this is not perfect power. It's power. But it's not perfect power. It's not comparative to the lamb, even though it sort of looks like the lamb. So I love this. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. How do you do better than that? That is beautiful. That is, how do you do better than that? That's clear clearly inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Looks like a lagon or a, lagon. <laughs> Where's my coffee? <laughs> right next to the Liger and whatever else, yeah. Looks like a looks like a lamb, talks like a dragon. That is such just an icon. It's so perfect because that fits so many things. So many things. Very rarely does it look like a dragon and talk like a dragon. Very rarely. Usually it is always uh, looks like a lamb. It's in the listening. It's in the listening that you can tell that it's a dragon. All right, well, this is a weird beast. Coming up out of the sea, two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises All the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Now, you remember that this authority comes to the first beast. It is given to the first beast by the red dragon. What you notice in John's... uh, exposition and revelation of the Trinity, this is true both in the Gospel and it's true in Revelation, is that he depicts the Trinity in economy. The Trinity in economy. The Trinity in ontology is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all co-equal, all co-eternal, none before the other, etc., etc. That language that we use in the Athanasian Creed, that is all true. The other side of the coin is that there is an economy. That is a relationship and ordering amongst the persons. Even though they are equal, there's a relationship and ordering such that they function. Uh, The analogy of this is husband and wife. Biblically, God makes the husband the head and wife is to obey husband. Okay, But then ontologically, in terms of the being, is there any distinction in hierarchy? No, they're entirely equal in terms of ontology in terms of what they are as God's children, and yet they're set in this order by God where the husband is the head of the wife. Okay, the same thing happens in the Trinity. By ontology, all three persons are completely equal, but then they relate to each other in a way in an economic sort of way where you see, for example, the son prays to the Father, but does the father ever pray to the son? No. And the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son, but does the Spirit ever send the Father or send the Son? No. Now, it's really, as I said, John, both in his Gospel and in Revelation, that that really give us I mean, Paul does it too, no doubt. There's other biblical data, but John is big on the economy side, the relationship of the person side of the Trinity. Okay, and that that is true here as well. So, what he's going to show is that there is an economy, even though, even though you, could, you could make the argument that the dragon and the two beasts are equally evil in terms of ontology, in terms of their being, uh, there is a pecking order, there is an ordering uh, that takes place, and this ordering mimics and apes the ordering of the economy of the Trinity. Up at the top is not the father, but the dragon, And what comes next is not the sun, but the beast from the sea. And what comes and you can even think of like the sun as king, the beast of the sea as tyranny, and then you can think of what flows from the sun is the spirit. You know, he pours out the spirit upon the church, and that's true religion, and worshiping in spirit and in truth, etc. And what this false Trinity does is pours out the false prophet, the false spirit. Just as this Holy Spirit leads us to Christ and Christ to the Father, so this lesser beast, this unholy spirit, leads us to worship the beast from the sea, and through the beast from the sea, we worship the dragon. And as I said before, this is this completely closed system. Uh, You either are worshiping the lamb or the dragon. Ultimately, that's it. Those are your choices. So there is a sort of hierarchy of order. The authority has been given to the first beast by the red dragon and this first beast allows the second beast to exercise all authority. That's verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. We talked about the meaning of that last week. Okay. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. In other words, this second beast is directing worship toward the first beast, and all of this is worship of the dragon. Now, how does this actually, how does this actually function? Well, you have to remember, of course, this is where being Lutheran is very, very helpful in terms of understanding the theological themes of Revelation. Because the the power, the authority of the devil, if you had to define that other than just some sort of abstract thing, what concretely would that power, would that authority be? It'd be sin. It'd be anomie, It'd be violation of God's law, violation of God's order. And the result of that sin, death. And death leading into eternal death. So sin, death, and hell. That's really the power and the authority of the devil. And so he gives that power and authority to the state. Think about it concretely then. So the state authorizes and demands worship in the form of sin and it wields as a consequence, if not, the power of death. Death unto eternal death. And false, this false religion, this third beast, is to worship governmental tyranny in the form of what the government tells you is good, which is sin, and in its power, which is death. So if you think about this very concretely in first century terms, maybe it will make a bit more sense, or at least you'll have a template to compare it to our own, our own vantage point here. In the 21st century. But in Rome, in Rome, this is, the, this is the devil's beast rising up out of the sea. If you're in Israel and you look across the sea, what's rising up is Rome. And the Roman power is the power to sin, to worship idols, to engage in the sexual immorality inherent in that idol worship, and ultimately to worship the emperor himself as divine. In fact, in our text today, I didn't bring it out in my sermon it was already too long. Uh, but, but inscribed often on the coin where Jesus says whose image and inscription are on it was a reference to the Caesar being divine. So now what is false religion doing in the Roman Empire? All false religion is saying, yes, worship the emperor. Do what the government tells you to do. All of this is good, right, and salutary it's from this vantage point and angle that we can see then the charge that the Romans were making against the first Christians. The first Christians were, do you know what? Atheists. Atheists was the accusation. Can you believe it? We were the first atheists because we said, no, 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 no. There's no God except for the one who hung on a cross and died and rose again three days later. There's no other God. And they said, that's atheism. Look at all these other gods. And in fact, what you're worshiping is no God, but just a man. And so you're atheist. We were the very first atheists. We can add that to our resume as Lutherans. (laughs) The very first Orthodox, the very first Catholic, the very first Evangelical, the very first atheist. I kind of like it. We'll add it in there. Also, (laughs) Also, the church is the very first baby drowners. That's what the Romans slandered us with, infant baptism. And cannibals, because we eat the body and drink the blood of our Lord Jesus. And sexually promiscuous, having orgies. Why? Because we had agape love feasts, otherwise known as potlucks. (laughs) Ah, Not much sexual immorality going on, but a lot of macaroni casserole. (laughs) Because as we all know, the early church was in the Midwest. (laughs) Uh, Okay, okay. So, kind of losing the forest for the trees, but trying not to. Trying not to. That's how, in broad broad contours, how it would look to a first century uh, Christian and why this would make sense. All false and corrupting religion is trying to get us to embrace the Roman ethos and the Roman ethos itself is is saying embrace this or die. And with it the sexual immorality and the violence of the games and the everything else, right? Embrace this or die. And all of that is um, these two beasts are the servants of the red dragon. And if you are a first century Christian, you go, obvious. Obvious. So as a 21st century American, you know, completely different historical and geographical context, we can see through these lenses we just need to realize it's not all about us and it's okay to see through these lenses and say what might that look like today in what ways does false religion tell us to embrace uh, the tyranny the sin at the point of a sword or else of government uh, in service to the dragon I mean, I'll just share a, all. It is a personal and private opinion. I think this is exactly what the mainline churches have done corporately, and what many uh, individual Christians either have done or are poised to do. Uh, the very first ones. I mean, if if our if our country continues to go the way it is, and in, in sort of this uh, right now, it's a soft totalitarianism against the church, laying a different immoral foundation. I preach about this some on in the in the sanctuary, so I'll try not to here, Uh, but laying an immortal, immoral foundation and government is the one is saying, hey, this is, we're all going to conform to this or else, and all false religion is saying, yeah, conform to this, what's the big deal? And this is where it's like really eerie that the first ones putting us up against the wall, the first ones betraying us are Christians, Christians. That's true even very concretely in the voting booth. If all Christians went out and voted according to the morality of the Bible, this country would change in a a year. It'd be utterly changed. It'd be utterly different. But Christians don't. Don't. And this this is where, too, it rings true that judgment begins where? At the house of God. And this is the judgment true enough there's going to be a judgment of fire and brimstone and all that other stuff but Paul tells us of a judgment that comes much earlier than that much before the the finality of the fire and the brimstone and the casting into eternal darkness and all of that and it's this judgment he gives them over to reprobate minds reprobate minds Paul's examples are so that a male lusts after a male and a female lusts after a female that's an example of a reprobate mind where that is taking place that is the judgment of God being enacted and you can see how the judgment of, of God has, has already hit those mainline denominations that have openly embraced this, uh, acting perfectly in our context like the second beast, demanding and encouraging that we all worship the first beast, which is what government is laying out as this new rainbow reality of utopia, you know, um, where everybody, everybody can have sex with everyone as, as far as I can tell about the baseline of that utopia. Um, look at how the look at how the the adultery and the idolatry are connected. Also, the sin against the sixth and the sin against the first. Because what you see all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the centuries and centuries of the Old Testament is this same connection: adultery and idolatry. Adultery and idolatry, they always go hand in hand. Gross violation of the sixth is very closely connected with a new and different god and in fact a pantheon of false gods which is why you have the child sacrifices of molech brought back into our into our culture and uh, other various ancient deities that uh we could simply name, we, call them insti- we, we name them institutionally right now and politically right now. But if you really wanted to get savvy about it, you could go back and trace the functions of those false gods in the Old Testament and line them up with our own gods now. We have the God of prosperity, the God of wealth and riches, a kind of, a kind of rain and thunder God like Baal. I think we call that the stock market. When it doesn't go well, there's human sacrifice. <laughs> People leaping out of tall buildings. Well, um, you know, there's an art to this, not a science. And I leave it, I leave it as I don't claim to have a monopoly on that, nor, nor is, there, is that the point of, of John's revelation. The point of John's revelation is teaching Christians to see things apocalyptically, to put these lenses put these spectacles on our eyes and see the truth, the theological truth of what's going on all around us. Okay? Again, we don't have to be so self-centered as to say, this is it for, you know, for the whole world. Rather, you might say, this is it for us. <laughs> or, no matter what happens to the whole world, whether it, whether it does, in fact, end now, or whether in fact it does go on another 3,000 years, these are still signs and symbols that will be there at the very end, whatever form they take. All right, well, let's, uh, let's get a little bit further on into the text. But I hope that I, all of this is meant to give you like, really rich, thick, theological context so that, you can, so that you can see that the most challenging verse in Revelation is actually probably one of the most easiest verses. Um, one more thing to point out. In verse 14, by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on earth. Real miracles, real miracles, um, real signs. Making fire come down from heaven is sort of an anti-Elijah thing. Elijah with the prophets of Baal. Um, but, But here's something that Jesus himself affirms, that false prophets are in fact able to do signs and wonders and miracles. So that tells us as Christians, both from the lips of Jesus and and from uh, Revelation, it tells us that our epistemology cannot be based on miracles. Because miracles can confirm the truth, as they did in in the early church, the pouring out of the Spirit and the apostolic miracles. But those same signs and wonders and miracles can be used to confirm the lie. And that's John's testimony of this right here. Jesus warns of the same thing if possible, even to deceive the elect, Jesus says. So don't let that into your epistemology, your how you know what you know. Miracles should not really be part of that. Okay. Only, only in a secondary sense, where the word of God says so and then a miracle confirms that, like you see in the early church in the book of Acts, then you can say valid miracle, it is proof and demonstrative of the proof of the word, of the veracity of the word. okay. But again, at Sola Scripture, we are really well equipped as Lutherans uh, for these things. Perhaps better equipped than any other Christian body on earth. All right, there's also a kind of mockery here, a kind of imitation in that, uh, in verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. The giving of breath, this is the, this is the third of the, of the evil trinity, okay, the third person. It is, if you remember, it is uh, the ruach, the spirit, the breath. So this is a play to see that what this second beast is doing is, in many respects, the anti-Holy Spirit, okay? And... He is, um, and then look, at look, you'll see kind of an anti-Christ element ro- woven in here too. Um, so he's allowed to give breath to the image or the idol of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. In first century, there's accounts of this. Uh, one of the things they did in their, with their idols and in their temples were what we would call animatronics. When I first learned this, my next trip to Disneyland sketched me out more than usual. Because what the ancients had in order to trick people into thinking that the god was real is they would have this stone statue set up with animatronics. They'd have large kilns built underground, and then steamworks, and so suddenly this thing would start moving or blowing fire, and everyone would be like, oh, "Ah, yeah, this must be a true god." So, in terms of in terms of like, what does that look like in the first century? I bet they had a concrete like, "Oh yeah, this is what he's talking about," or "This and this and this other thing is what he's talking about." Um, to us, it's a little strange. We'd have to we'd have to conceive of that more poetically, I think, and then. And then look, look how this is noted too, that the image of the beast, I'm in the middle of 15, might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. There's kind of an anti, there's kind of an anti-martyrdom here, an antithesis to martyrdom. So that the worship of the true lamb is being willing to be slain and the and and not worship <laughs> yeah. and the worship of the of the false lamb is um, slaying others one is one is being willing to be murdered the other is murdering like like just in a microcosm that's the difference between christianity and false religion and that's one of the, that was one of the great tells for the reformers. They're like, you know, as they're appealing to, to the civil authorities, as they're appealing to Charles V and the common people everywhere and theologians everywhere, they're like, how much more evidence do you need? We are not murdering anyone. These folks are murdering and, and slaying us. This is, this is the mark. Christians don't put other people to death. Christians are put to death. That's how you know who's who in the zoo. All right. So kind of anti-martyrdom going on. And then verse 16, also it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Okay. So what does this look like I mean, before we jump into, like, microchip injections. <laughs> okay. What does this look like in the first century? What does this look like in the first century? Because that's, that's who John's writing this text to. In the first century, it looks like this. If you won't bow down and, I mean, if you're going to be a Christian and an atheist and cast yourself out of society, at bare minimum, you don't get to participate in society. You're exiled, as John was, off to the island of Patmos. You're ostracized. It's made illegal to help you in any respect, to allow you to buy and sell or participate in, in society. So that's, that's what it means. You're outcast. You're exiled. Perhaps you're even slain. So that's what it is in, in the first century. This, this mark on the right hand or on the forehead, um, on the right hand is very often where slaves would be marked, where soldiers would be marked. This is the common sign of, like, who owns you. That's the right hand. Sometimes the right shoulder was used. Do you remember that, um, the gladiator? Uh, Russell Crowe? It's kind of one of these guy movies. Are you not entertained? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, so in one scene, he's seen carving away at his shoulder. He's carving off the sfragus, the seal of, of the Roman unit to which he belonged. That's, that was ownership, okay? So, so these marks, these, these sfragas, uh are, are on the right hand frequently, on the shoulder. Um, slaves sometimes even on the forehead. Why the right hand? Why the forehead? Because you can't do anything without those two things. <laughs> Wherever you are, there your forehead is. Whatever it is that you're doing, buying or selling, conducting business, shaking a hand, there it is. Okay, that's, that's the point. There's really nothing beyond that, all right? So on the right hand and on the uh, forehead, there's this mark, this sphragus, this seal. um, A mark of ownership. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. He can't participate in society. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, we'll go back and collect these details in a minute. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man and his number is six, six, six. Okay. So look at your study note. This is, a, this is a fine treatment. A fine treatment. Chapter 13, verse 8 on your study note. Um, in terms of calculating, it simply means figure out. And as the study note remarks, considerable time and effort has been spent trying to decipher this enigmatic number, but no single solution has one general acceptance. His number is 666. The threefold six may indicate a threefold falling short of seven. The number of perfection. That would be a fitting number for the Anti Trinity. Hebrew and Greek characters served both as letters and numbers. I forget what this is called Gematria or something like that. Anyway, I'm not certain on that. Uh, Nero Caesar, transliterated into Hebrew, does total 666, and numerous other names. Have also been proposed. So, if you want an exact—I mean, if you if you think that Paul or if you think that John is referring to an exact uh, person, an exact name here, um, because he says. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're marked with the name of the beast or the number of its name, then what is that name and number? You would say Nero Caesar, who of course he claimed to be divine, he persecuted Christians, he fits. If you're looking for a first century historical figure that this could be a referent to. And, and kind of honestly seems to lean that way just because of the, of the brevity and the simplicity with which John treats this is like, yeah, you all know who this is. I'm just not going to spell it out but you know who it is. That seems to point towards Nero Caesar. Um, but I think that the study note is true in a deeper sense, in a deeper sense, that the immediate historical referent might have been Nero Caesar, but the deeper reality is it's simply the mark of the anti-Trinity. It's simply the mark of uh, the two beasts and um, Obviously, you have an economy. The beast of the earth is taking you to the beast of the sea. The beast of the sea is causing you to worship the dragon. There's an economy there. So it's the beast of, it's the, beast of the earth. You receive his mark. But really, that mark is, uh, is the, the threefold six, less than the threefold seven the anti-trinity, the evil trinity. I think that that's a more theologically satisfying answer and really opens, opens it up to if you're going to try to read this in terms of modern context, that's the way you'd read it. So look, look with, uh, we need to go just a minute, a minute further. Let's, let's go into 14.1. Remember these chapter breaks and heading breaks are not original to the text, So as written on a papyrus, this simply would have run on next together. And I think this is a big problem when when we try to figure out 666. We just stop right there as if, well, that's the data. It's not. Look at 14.1 and following with me. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. So contrast that again with verse 11. He's got two horns like a lamb, this beast, and now immediately we see the Lamb. And with him, 144,000. Now, we've looked at that number before. We'll talk about it again. That number appeared in, in Revelation 7 where we're talking about the church on earth, the church militant. But look at how they're described, the 144,000, who had his name, the lamb's name, and his father's name written where? On their foreheads. So go back and just look at the parallelism Look at the parallelism. Back in chapter, uh, yeah, 13, um, verse, I guess it's the end of verse 16 and into 17. So they're to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead. The only difference is the right hand. But here, look, forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So just look at the connection. Forehead, name, Name, and then you come over here to chapter fourteen, verse one, and it's name, name, forehead. Do you see that? I mean, there's two instances of name in chapter, or in yeah, chapter thirteen, verse seventeen, and one instance of uh, a forehead in in uh, verse sixteen, and then here in 14, 1, there's again two instances of name and one instance of forehead. So this really seals the deal, in my mind, that even John, as, as he in all likelihood in a, to his first century audience, has them understanding that this is uh, you know, Nero Caesar. He's written this in such a way that when you look at the woman, you see Mary, but you see more than the Mary. You see more than Mary, you see the church. When you look at Nero Caesar, this, this beast and mark of the beast, you see that, but you see more than that. You see an anti, anti-Trinity. You see an anti-baptismal reality. Because when we take chapter 14, verse 1, and you're talking about the 144,000, again, from Revelation 7, those are the baptized Christians lined in perfect battle array, 12 times uh, 12,000. Um, and you've got uh, their, you know, his name, the Lamb's name, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. I mean, if that's not a baptismal reference, I don't know what would be. To be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Also, in the first century, uh, when Christians made the sign of the cross, they made it on their forehead. Gen- there's no record of of making it like this um, in the earliest church. Uh, I think it's, I think it's. I think it's Tertullian who tells us, he says he's got this line, we Christians wear out our foreheads by making the sign of the cross. So um, when you're making the sign of the cross all the time here and you're taught this at baptism and then the name of the, of the lamb and, and his father written upon your forehead, what are you thinking as an early church Christian? You're only thinking one thing, baptism. And the opposite of that is, if you don't have that, you've got the mark of the beast. Again, because this is a closed system, it's one or the other. So you either have the mark of the beast on your forehead or the mark of the lamb. That's it. You belong to one of of two kingdoms, one of two families. All right. Well, um, that's all the further I want to get. Let me pause and see if you have any questions or comments. And then next week, we'll simply, uh, God willing, launch into chapter uh, 14. I can't help but hear... Uh, our gospel text from today and our uh, and the sermon from today, ringing in my ears as we're reading through this. Yeah. yeah. The ins- whose inscription do we have imprinted on us? Absolutely. Uh, and you almost see it. Um, you render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God. You you see the the two oppos- oppositions uh, set up against each other right there. Uh, it's it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. And that that verse right there has a very, very fascinating lineage because in some instances, it's used quite positively to build what we call the two kingdoms. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, this friendly rendering unto the left-hand kingdom. What is God's, God's, and that's the right-hand kingdom. And it, and it can be used and is used that way frequently. But you also have an antithesis view written in there, which is kind of more what you were articulating and what I was articulating in the, in the sermon today, where these two things are seen as, uh, as opposites making a demand upon your whole life and being. And Jesus says, no, Caesar's demand goes this far. The coin in your pocket that's got his name on it the rest of you belongs to God I, that's probably actually more close to the original meaning of Jesus' word so thank you for that alright one more hand here and uh, then we better go so I can chug a little water and a little more coffee Give a I actually have a nephew that works with Bill and Melinda Gates on the antivirus oh, yes. and the issue of uh, he's a grad of Oxford, England, and Valparaiso, and places yeah. like that. But anyway, the, the talk of having the chip, the logic of having the chip within the antivirus was for the tracking of humans from one place to another, which, which I find fascinating. Well, it's all for our good, you see. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And it's going to be convenient. But I mean, my argument is why do I need a chip in my forehead or in my right hand? I've already got one that I've voluntarily <laughs> taken. It knows everything about me, listens to everything I say. Yeah. So I. <laughs> anyway, I, all of these sort of modern American interpretations have to be seen as just that not not the precise and fulfilling referent of what revelation is talking about but at best kind of a way in which we're seeing our world through the re- lens of revelation all right that's it the lord be with you and <laughs>